Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Uh, my name is Darren Schreck. I'm a professor of political science here, and I apologize to all my students who already have me. This is my Twitter handle, at ShreckPhD. Uh, you can follow me there, where I, we talk about politics, and I get some student feedback as well. Uh, just to give you some background about myself, I've been here now for 21 years. Uh, I really enjoy the political process. I know it's kind of strange because many people can't stand it. Uh, they don't see the purpose in it. They may be apathetic to the entire process. Uh, to, but also, when I was a child at about four years old, I knew all of the presidents in order. I don't know why, but I did. And you can imagine how many friends I had as well if I knew all of the presidents when I was four. But ever since that time, I've always taken an interest in politics and history. And we do have an election, as Kevin brought up, uh, that we do have an election coming up in 2020. And it's a very complicated process. It's not a straightforward process, much like uh, other countries where you do see sim something that's kind of linear. And it does make more sense. But in the United States, there is some complication to it. And I hope to simplify it while we're here. Uh, before we get started, I just wanted to thank some people, Professor Navratil for putting this together, who puts together some really great events with the democracy commitment. I also wanted to thank Troy Swanson, Dr. Troy Swanson from the library for suggesting that this should be recorded so that in case if you want to listen to it again or you could not make or you want to listen to it and show some of your friends what was going on, uh, you could do that. And also uh, Sean Terry and Robert Kupsch from the uh, Multimedia Services for uh, bringing the equipment. And Caleb, thank you for being here as well. Really appreciate it. Uh, just to get started. We're trying to discuss today, or we're trying to understand how we nominate a candidate for president. It's not just a straight up vote when we show up and vote that every vote counts towards a candidate getting elected. There are some nuances that come along with it. So what we're going to try to understand is how to get from point A to point B. Point A when it comes to the election and point B when we get the results. Understand this, we do not have a national election system. It is a 50-state election process. So every state comes up with its own rules and own ideas of how to conduct its own election. So Illinois is going to be different from New York, and New York is going to be different from Iowa, and Iowa is going to be different from New Hampshire. And the reason why we bring up Iowa and New Hampshire is that they play a crucial role in nominating for president, as Iowa is the first nominating election and New Hampshire is the second. So we're going to try to figure out how, like I said, the historical aspect of it before we go into the nuances of how the political perspective works. Some historical perspective. Now, I know in the uh, advertisement it says we're going to try to understand the caucus system. But when we nominated somebody for president, we had something that was called a caucus system that was much different than what we have today. So we had our caucus system. We also had something called a convention system, which kind of exists today to some degree. And we have our traditional caucus and primary system that we've been used to since 1972 to the present, with some years here and there change about. But I'm trying to just give you an idea that there is some kind of uh, aspect where one begins and one ends. When you look at the word caucus in general, excuse me, when you look at the word caucus in general, the word caucus is a party meeting. That's all it is. But 
Early on in our nation's history, we had two political parties. We had the Democratic Republicans and we had the Federalists. The Federalists were the party of, let's say, centralized, strong, centralized government, where government kind of knew what was best for everybody. The Democratic Republicans, which we would also call the Anti-Federalists, they were in favor of state-run government. Now, some of my students already know about that stuff since we talked about Federalist and Anti-Federalist early on in the semester. But in both cases, even though these political parties were polar opposites of each other, they nominated their candidates for president the same way. So let's just imagine that on this side of the room, you are all Federalists, and you all get together, and you decide one day that John Adams is going to be the nominee for president in your political party. And on another day or another week, the Democratic Republicans all get together, and they decide that Thomas Jefferson is going to be their nominee. That's it. The public didn't select a candidate. The public didn't vote. The public didn't nominate. So what ends up coming about is that you have both political parties choosing the candidates for the public. The role of the party leaders, the role of the party leaders is essential to understand because they dictated the future of the nominating process. They dictated the direction of the political party. The public, like I said, had no real active responsibility in this process. That's all going to change with a new political system that's created, what we would call a convention system. Now, Andrew Jackson was president from about 1829 to 1837. He was a Democratic Republican, but also became a member and founding member, basically, of the Democratic Party. This political era of selecting a president begins. Before this period, like I said, the party leaders would choose. Now, you actually had candidates who actively campaigned for president. Not that they went door to door like we see today, but they had surrogates who would actually do the work for them. They would go around handing out pamphlets, handing out tokens, putting together parades, putting together, let's say, uh, torch lightings, and they would go around and they would campaign on behalf of the candidate. When we had a convention system, we kind of took, let's say, the aspect of the authority from the party leaders away in nominating, and we gave the public more authority to nominate someone. Now, this works kind of in a little bit more of a complicated way. In a convention system, the public and the party leaders select delegates. And I'll talk more about delegates in a little bit when we look at how the Iowa caucus and New Hampshire primary work. But the party leaders and the voters would select representatives to go to a convention and then nominate a candidate for president. So you all here are a member of, let's just say, a political party. It doesn't matter which one it is because the Democrats did it, the Whigs did it. The Democrats did it. The Republicans did it. It didn't matter which political party you belong to. So what ends up happening is this. You are all a member of a political party. You all get together, and maybe you're allowed to send eight delegates to a convention. You're going to decide who those eight people are, and those eight people are going to select the presidential candidate from that political party. 
Sometimes this worked out. Sometimes it didn't work out. And just because everybody's deciding who the delegates are going to be, and they would pledge themselves to a candidate, it didn't mean that that person that they pledged themselves to would actually become the nominee. There are some kinks in this system. For example, three come to mind. One is more modern than the other two. In 1880, James Garfield became the Republican nominee for president. He wasn't even considered to be a nominee until the convention in Chicago was held. He wasn't even thought of. There were three candidates, Blaine, Grant, and Sherman. And the Republican Party could not come to a consensus as to who the nominee of the party should be. But wait a minute, you're thinking. Didn't they just send delegates to that convention to select that candidate? To select a candidate? Yes, we sent delegates to that convention, but not one candidate received a majority. And then they voted again at the convention. And then they voted again. And they voted again. And they voted again. Until they had to come up with a consensus. Let's pick somebody off the board, see what happens. Because we have to end this convention at some point. So what they did is they chose James Garfield. It wasn't like they picked him up off of the street and said, hey, you want to be president? And he said, sure or he was surprised by it. He was in on the decision-making, too. He was a congressman from Ohio. In fact, he's the last congressman we've ever nominated and elected directly from the House of Representatives to become president. In 1924, it took the Democratic Party 103 party tries to come up with a nominee. It started off with William McAdoo, it then went to Al Smith. 102 tries later, they came to the consensus that a little-known ambassador to the United Kingdom from the United States, of course, and a congressman from West Virginia by the name of John Davis would be the nominee. But you know, when you think back, that's like old-time stuff. Nobody really understands how the political process works. Everything starts to change in 1968. And it begins to change in 1968 because of television. There's a lot of things that are going on in 1968. One thing that happens is President Johnson decides, President Lyndon Johnson decides that he's not going to run for re-election. And that opens up the floodgates to anybody who wants to run for president. Now you had some candidates who were very, very liberal. One being Eugene McCarthy. Eugene McCarthy was from uh, Minnesota. And he was so anti-war as a Democrat that in today's day and age, you would say that he was probably more of an Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders type. But he was a Democrat, unlike Bernie Sanders, who is not a Democrat but still runs in the Democratic Party in the primaries. McCarthy was all the way to the left. His chief opponent was Robert Kennedy from New York. And Robert Kennedy was left of center, but you know what? He's anti-war, but not as anti-war as McCarthy. And he's kind of like that middle ground type of Democrat. And as they're going through the convention, excuse me, the primaries, which we'll talk about, as they're going through the primaries and everybody starts accumulating delegates, it looks like that in June of 1968, 
that Robert Kennedy is going to be the nominee of the Democratic Party. And at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, California, he walks through the kitchen after winning the California primary and is assassinated. And all you're left with are a bunch of unallocated delegates at Eugene McCarthy. Now the party is scrambling because they don't want this guy to be the nominee. He's going to be an embarrassment. So President Johnson, along with old man Mayor Daley, they get together at the Chicago Convention and they discuss who the nominee is going to be. And they choose Hubert Humphrey, who was vice president at the time. Hubert Humphrey officially ran in zero primaries and zero caucuses. The party chose him. Now here you go through this entire exercise of voting and voting and voting and voting and voting and you have all of these delegates who are supposed to represent you at the convention. You go through that entire exercise and what does the party do? They say, we don't want that guy. We're going to pick our own guy. See, the party still had authority. They could do whatever they wanted to do if they didn't like what the public chose. The difference between 1968 and 1880, the difference between 1968 and 1924, is that everybody saw it on television while it was happening. And they said, wait a minute, this system is a fraud. This system has to change. So in 1970, things are going to change. We're going to reform the system. Which kind of brings us to what our title is all about, the current caucus and primary system. Caucuses and primaries were never new. They're not new ideas. They only seem like they're new based on the date that I write up there about 1972. But they only seem new because they're binding now. The results of these caucuses and primaries matter. So let's look at it this way. Before 1972, you could have caucuses and primaries, and whatever the people wanted, the public could be pushed out. The party could ignore it. After 1972, the party has to abide by what the public wants. It comes about from something called the McGovern-Fraser Commission, which means that any result that comes from our caucuses and primaries have to be adhered to by the party. There's a way around that, and I'm going to show it to you. But every political party, whether it's Democrat or Republican, has to pay attention to the rules. The rules matter. Whoever the public wants, that's the party's nominee. We still have conventions, but we already know who the nominee is going to be. So this one is from 2016. This is from the Republican National Convention. Donald Trump had a majority of the delegates represented at the convention through the caucuses and primaries. So when he went to the caucuses and primaries, you already knew he was, excuse me, when he went to the convention, you already knew he was going to be the nominee because he won a majority. There's no like, oh, suspense. There isn't any suspense to this anymore. This is more of like a coronation, a beauty contest. Democrats do it too. So this isn't going to be a discussion where the Democrats are right and the Republicans are wrong, or the Republicans are right and the Democrats are wrong. Both parties do this. They behave like, in this case here, that everything is a coronation. And the public is in charge all the way through the convention system. 
What we need to understand for our intent and purpose today is to figure out why Iowa and New Hampshire are first and second in line in choosing the nominees for president. It all has to do with rules. Some of it has to go about by accident. And some of it is tradition and history. And we just kind of go along with it and understand that Iowa is always first and New Hampshire is second. The Iowa caucus. This is a picture of a, a caucus that took place in 2016 on the Republican side. Person holding a Marco Rubio sign. Notice how everybody is out in front of one another supporting the candidate of their choice. In 1846, when the state was put together, the state of Iowa uh, you know, was entered into our union, they had caucuses, the old way of doing things, where the party leaders got together and they chose their candidates. So the word caucus kind of has a different meaning today, but caucuses have always existed. In 1972, the Iowa caucus, in terms of nominating the president of a certain political party, became first in the nation on the calendar by accident. And let me explain how that happened. We go back to this right here, the McGovern-Fraser Commission. The McGovern-Fraser Commission said that you have to have a certain number of months in between the time of your caucus or primary to the convention when determining how many delegates each state gets. And we'll talk, like I said, we'll get to delegates in a second. What happened in Iowa was this. When they choose delegates to represent people at a convention, they do it in steps. They have it at the precinct level, they have it at the county level, they have it at the state level, they have it at the national level. And that takes weeks that takes months for them to finalize. In 1972, the convention was held in June. It said something along the lines of, you have to have six months between your election and the convention. And Iowa realized it was going to take six months for them to get all of their delegates counted. Because they do this process from the precinct, the very low level, to the county, to the state, to the national. It's going to take them six months to do it. So what they had to do is that they had to be first. And being first meant to have their election in January. New Hampshire was always first until Iowa came along. So Iowa becomes first in the nation by accident. And also you could say it's because of the rules, but it could have been any state. But Iowa came first. So they had a January date due to their July uh, National Convention based on that McGovern-Fraser Commission. Now, how does it work? Like a, I'm going to have it on, a, on another post, but let's just say this. This room is a caucus. I think that's the best way of putting it together. This room, let's just say, is going to be a caucus. According to something called the Iowa Code, the political parties can determine what their rules are for the caucus. And the voters choose their candidates in a very open process. Meaning that when we discuss who we're going to support for president, we actually say it out loud. In primary states, you do it at the voting booth. Nobody knows who you're voting for. Nobody knows that you showed up. Nobody knows that you left. 
But when it comes to the Iowa caucus, everybody from the neighborhood shows up at a given time on a certain date. Now, if you're working, you missed it. If you got kids and can't bring your kids, you've missed it. But everybody on the street now knows who you voted for because you're at the caucus. And in some cases, they ask you to separate yourself based on the candidate of your choice. So we're all here hanging out. We're all talking about the rules. And somebody says in 2020, OK, all of you in favor of Bernie Sanders, get up and go next door. And all of you in favor of Joe Biden, get up and go next door. And all of you in favor of, you know, Tim Ryan, go up, you know, since there's probably only one of you, find a room that only has one person, you know, that fits one person. You can go to any room. It's usually in a schoolhouse, a VFW, gymnasium, something like that. So everybody splits themselves up. You know who's showing up, and it's like, oh, I didn't know my neighbor was in favor of Elizabeth Warren. Now I know, and now I'm not going to talk to my neighbor anymore. That could happen. I didn't know my neighbor was in favor of Bernie Sanders. I always thought my neighbor was an idiot. I'll go along with them then. Sounds like a great idea. It's a very, very open process. The Iowa caucus is much different than anything else. Now, through that Iowa caucus, you have a delegate process, which represents the candidates at the national convention through voter preferences. Let's demonstrate. Like I said, everybody's in full view of one another. You all know who's showing up to vote. You all then know who we are in favor of. Before we vote, we actually discuss our preferences. So there will be a Republican caucus, and there will be a Democratic caucus. Republicans might have the room you know, on the other side of the building. All of the Democrats show up, and we have this room right here. And then uh, a chair of the caucus gets up. Now think of it this way. The state of Iowa has 99 counties. There is a caucus going on in every county and every precinct. So there's hundreds of them going on, just like this one here. And the chair of this precinct gets up and says, who would like to say a few words about Joe Biden? Somebody stands up, gives a few words. How about Elizabeth Warren? Somebody else stands up and says why you should support Elizabeth Warren. And we do the same thing for Sanders and Harris and Booker and Buttigieg. And the list goes on and on and on. Once we're done discussing, we now vote. But the Democrats and Republicans do things a little bit differently. There's a big difference between the two. For Republicans, we have a discussion. Now let's use 2016 because there were more than just like two candidates running or three candidates running. So. In 2016, somebody says, I'm in favor of Ted Cruz. Another one says, I'm in favor of Marco Rubio. Another one says, Donald Trump. Another one says, Herman, uh, excuse me, uh, Ben Carson. Another one says, Carly Fiorina, and the list goes on and on. Once the discussion is done on the Republican side, we vote. And we're done. That's it. Now, some of you might remember from the class that, and I'll show you an example from this documentary, but you noticed from the documentary entitled Caucus, which fo uh, focuses on the Iowa caucus, Republican voters just vote. They tally up the votes. They figure out how the delegates will be split up at the convention, and we're done. Democrats do things a little bit differently. 
Democrats finish up their discussion and the voting takes place. To qualify for delegates, a candidate must be considered viable with 15% of the caucus vote. So we have 4, 6, 9, 12, 13, you got 16, 19, 23, 26, you got 30, 32, 34, 36, 37 people. So you're figuring in order to be a viable candidate, you need at least six participants to support that candidate. So we're going to then tell everybody, split yourselves up based on the candidate of your choice. Three people go over here, seven people go over there, 12 people go over there, two people go over there, and there are two others who are kind of confused or whatever. Okay, they split themselves up differently. Once we are done, we figure out who has 15%. And we say, well, the one with 12 has 15%, the one with seven has 15%, but the ones with three, two, one, they don't have 15%, we go to a second round of voting. We then tell those people who don't have 15%, get up and join somebody else's campaign. Now you can decide not to if you don't want to, but you would then go around and say, well, I was in favor of you know, Tulsi Gabbard and I know she's not getting 15%, so then you kind of like sell, you want to listen to how they're gonna sell their candidate to you. So you might join Joe Biden's campaign. Then once that round is over, we tally up the votes, and then we figure out who gets the delegates. So let's use this as an example. This is Democratic Party math. There are 100 people in the room, and it turns out there are eight delegates who are representing the political party from that room. They tend to be party leaders, politicos, things like that. There are four candidates who are running. You need 15% to be viable. So in this case, you need 15 supporters to go along with you being a viable candidate. So candidate A, after two rounds of voting, gets 60 supporters. Candidate B gets 20 supporters. Candidate C gets 10 supporters and candidate D gets 10 supporters. So the numbers are a little bit off, but here you're looking at five, two, and one. We decide who the delegates go to based on how much percentage points they get in those two rounds of voting. It's a more of an open process. It's more about preference voting than it is about straight out. Like the Republicans, you go out and you vote and then whoever gets the nomination, or I should say whoever wins gets the most delegates, this one kind of does it proportionally, and it does it twice. It's different than how the Republicans do it. Now, the caucus is a different system than primaries. Primaries are very simple. Primaries are what pretty much almost every state has. Okay. Many states have caucuses, but not most. When we have a primary, the state of Illinois has a primary. We know that there are two different types of primaries. There's an open primary and there is a closed primary. An open primary works like this. There's an election today, but when you show up at that state, 
you don't have to actually pick a political party until you show up to vote at that time. So for example, let's just demonstrate it like this. For all intents and purposes, we'll say that there's really only one Republican running. And then on the Democratic side, you have Biden, and you have Harris, and you have Warren, and you have Sanders, and the other 1,500 people who are running. It only seems like 1,500. I think it's about 17. So here you have votes. Now let's say you live in a state that's open. And in your mind, you're a big-time Republican. But you show up, and you don't want to vote in the Republican primary because there's nothing going on. You already know who's going to win it. So when you show up in an open primary system, you can pick up either party ballot. You don't have to be registered as a party member. You pick up either one. So Democrats show up, and they vote on the Democratic primary. Republicans show up, they could vote in the Democratic primary. So what do you do? Perhaps if you're a Republican, you vote for the worst candidate possible, and you hope that candidate wins. Democrats show up, they'll probably pick from one of those four. Now, in a closed system, it works a little bit different. I remember growing up in a closed primary state, moved to another closed primary state. I lived in New Jersey, lived in North Carolina. In both cases, they were closed primaries. For example, when we got our driver's licenses, they would ask you the question, do you want to register to vote? You'd say yes. What party do you want to be a member of? We don't know anything about politics. So you just pick one. You say, well, okay, I'm a Republican. They mark you down, you're a Republican. Now on election day, when we're selecting a nominee, you show up. They say, what's your name? My name's John Doe. My name's Jane Doe. They ask you, okay, sign here. And they tell you, here's your Republican ballot. You're already registered under that party. So then you show up and you look at it and you go, well, there's a lot of stuff going on over here. But I can't vote on that side. I can only pick whoever's on this side. There are situations where if you live in a closed primary state, it might look like this, and you have nobody to vote for. And it could be with Democrats or Republicans. So if you are a registered Republican, you can only vote for that Republican or the choices that are under the Republican Party for that primary. If you're a Democrat, you can only pick from the Democratic scale. You cannot cross over. You cannot switch your party affiliation at any time. Whatever you're registered under, that's what you're stuck with. So we have two different types of primaries. The open, which is open. Anybody can vote in any party primary. Not both, just one. And on the Republic, excuse me, in the closed system, the closed system you are stuck with whichever party you are registered under. The New Hampshire primary. In 1920, the public complained that they weren't getting enough say-so in picking their nominee for president. They couldn't directly pick the nominee. They could only pick delegates who were representative of that candidate. 
1952, they were allowed to pick their candidates directly. They have an open primary, somewhat, and they have a closed primary, somewhat. It works like this. If you are not registered to vote right now, you could still show up and vote that day. And you can pick up either one that you want. But you, if you are already registered, you had to be registered under a party label. So whatever one you registered under, that's the only one you could pick up. So if I'm a registered Democrat, I can only pick up this ballot. But if I show up that day and say, hey, I've never registered before, they'll say, well, which one do you want? So for those people who are new to the process, you can pick up either ballot on that day. But if you've already registered, you can't pick up either ballot. You have to be with that ballot that you are already registered under. Anybody can run in this system. It almost seems like everybody runs in the New Hampshire primary. It costs only $1,000 to get on the ballot. You look at it and you say, well, I don't have $1,000. Well, there are a lot of people who have $1,000, and you'll see that there are candidates you know, from A to Z who run in the New Hampshire primary. And in order to receive delegates to be representative of you at that convention, you need 15%. That's on both sides, both Democrats and Republicans. And there is no second voting. Like I said, most states have a primary system rather than a caucus system. Are there positives and negatives about Iowa and New Hampshire? Absolutely. So we're going to critique the system slightly. The support for. This is something we don't see in Illinois. I'll take that back. The first one is something we might see in Chicago in aldermanic districts where you have people knocking door to door. But instead of thinking about it from a Chicago perspective, in Iowa and New Hampshire, the public wants to see you. They want you to campaign face to face. They want you at the barbecues. They want you at the parades. They want you shaking hands. Kamala Harris has a big Iowa problem. She has a lot of money coming into the campaign, but she's got a big problem in Iowa. She didn't campaign in Iowa. She campaigned in the summer and said, I'll come back later. Now she's back and everybody says, where have you been? They want to see you or your campaign surrogates on a daily basis. They want you shaking hands. They want you at the supermarket. They want to be next to you. It's very important. Sounds cornball. But it's more important to campaign face to face than to advertise in television in those two states. It goes a long way. In a state like New York, Pennsylvania, Illinois, California, Texas, bigger states like that, yeah, you have to be in the Chicago television market. You have to be in Los Angeles, San Diego, San Francisco. You have to be Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, New York City. So you have to be on television. It's more important to do it that way in those states than to be on television or radio in these two states. Also, the economic impact. Now, this is kind of sketchy, so we're going to look at it from the positive perspective. Each state likes the fact that candidates come in because that means people spend money in their states. The reality is that is true, but most candidates are spending their money on consultants. They're not spending their money directly in the state, but they are campaigning in that state, which makes people visit the state 
and spend their own money. So it's like the public is spending their money, but not the candidates in those two. It weeds out lackluster candidates. We've got 17 candidates now running for president. Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City, is saying that he wants to get in the presidential race. Okay, like we needed more. Iowa and New Hampshire weed out all of the bad ones. And I don't mean like they're bad people, just meaning that they're candidates who probably don't have any chance of being the nominee. So by the time it gets to our primary, which we'll talk about, by the time it gets to our primary, we'll notice that there aren't many candidates on the ballot. Uh, viability and electability. Viability means that could you see yourself voting for these candidates? Electability means can you see any of these candidates becoming president? So you might vote for somebody because you like them or you like her. But you're not considering, would they be good against Donald Trump? So viability says, this is a legitimate candidate. Electability says, can I see this candidate against their opponent? Which is also why I have it as an against. And I'll get to that in a second. We also like this aspect because new voters come into play. Anybody can vote in the Iowa caucus just as long as they're there at a certain time. Excluded groups tend to vote in these elections like religious groups, uh, ethnic groups, groups that are kind of ignored at the larger scale. Uh, in Iowa, for example, farmers tend to vote. Why? Because farming is a big issue. But is farming a bigger issue in the other 49 states? Probably not as big as it is in Iowa. So you end up getting people who feel excluded in the political process. They show up. Now, in terms of being against, you know, Iowa and New Hampshire are dictating somewhat for the entire national scene. Think about that. Those two states are going to dictate for the other 48. Two very small states. The states are not ethnically diverse. Either state is not necessarily representative of the entire country. You have 90 to 95 percent of a white population in New Hampshire and a 90 percent white population in Iowa. Uh, it is not necessarily ethnically or racially diverse, and yet they're going to decide for most of the public. Again, viability and electability. We're looking at these candidates like, do I like them, but I'm not considering would any of them beat Donald Trump? Or would any of them beat Barack Obama? Or would any of them beat George W. Bush? So there's a difference between, I like this candidate, versus, is this candidate really a good candidate in the general election? Because we're not even talking about the general election. We're talking about nominating. And then with Iowa and New Hampshire, with all that we're talking about, it is not necessarily a forecaster of a party's nominee. So the question is, do candidates from Iowa and New Hampshire, when they win uh, those states, do they, become the do they become the nominee of the national party? In the last 12 elections, uh, eight Democrats who won Iowa uh, became the nominee. In the last 12 elections, only six who won Iowa became the nominee. In fact, the last three Republican elections uh, picked somebody other than the nominee. Uh, Mike Huckabee over uh, John McCain. 
uh, as some of you might remember from the film, Rick Santorum over Mitt Romney and Ted Cruz over Donald Trump. In New Hampshire, there's a better track record, but still, eight out of 16 uh, Democrats, I should say, won the New Hampshire primary and became the nominee of their party. 12 of the 16 uh, Republican nominees became the nominee of their party. So it's not necessarily a great track record. It's not a bad one either, but it's not 100%. And we're going back to, for New Hampshire since 1952, since they were an official primary. And in Iowa, we're going back to 1972 when it was an official caucus. That's why there's a bit of a difference with the numbers. One of the aspects that's on the uh, advertisement is something called superdelegates. And you might have heard that in the last election. Superdelegates are another form of delegates that need to be discussed because it only happens on the Democratic side. And they were created for a singular purpose. And I'll get to it. When we vote in our caucus and primaries, we allocate representatives or delegates to the convention. We vote for them, either directly or indirectly. These people are not voted on. They're not. These people are what we would call unpledged delegates. And who are they? They're members of the party, governors, congressmen, and distinguished party leaders. I believe in 2016 there were over 700 of them. And they had a lot of influence in who became the nominee for president. In 1984, the establishment, we always talk about the establishment in politics. We say, well, who's the establishment? The establishment are those people who don't want to give up any power. They're the shirt and tie people. Okay, they don't want any, let's be frank about it, they don't want minorities getting involved, they don't want um, urban communities getting involved to some degree. If it's a liberal party like the Democratic Party, they don't want conservatives getting involved. It's going to be people of a certain background who is going to choose, let's say, the strength or determine the strength of the party. But the McGovern-Fraser Commission, they overturned all of that. Remember? The McGovern-Fraser Commission said that, well, the, whatever the public wants, that's what we get. So the party starts to notice that the public is nominating candidates who are kind of questionable. And maybe they can't win. So in 1984, they come up with this idea of superdelegates, where unelected people are going to determine partly who the nominee of the party is going to be. They did it in 1984 for two reasons. Gary Hart was a very liberal uh, Democrat from Colorado. and He was getting a lot of younger support. And the Reverend Jesse Jackson was running for president, and he was getting a lot of African-American support. And the party said, we need to get an establishment shirt and tie type of guy as our nominee. Whoever the public wants, that's one thing. But if we get enough superdelegates, they can actually circumvent what the public wanted. The best example is in 2016. You needed 2,382 delegates to win. But there aren't 2,382 delegates available from the public. Here's the problem.
these 572 people pledged their support, for the most part, to Hillary Clinton before the first election. So before Iowa even started, the delegate total was 572 to zero. So many of you, or I should say some of you, might have voted in the Illinois primary for Bernie Sanders. Your guy, even if he had won Illinois, still lost. Why? Because the Democratic Party already had it set up that these bigwigs in the party were going to decide that they were going to throw their support to Hillary Clinton. And then whoever else wanted to do it on the side, they could, but they won't matter. Now, I'm not a Hillary Clinton supporter necessarily, and I'm not a Bernie Sanders supporter necessarily, but you do see that the math was already stacked up against Bernie, Sander be Bernie Sanders before the first election. It was already working against him. So you went through all of this, campaigning and putting up signs and putting up buttons and going door to door, and your guy was going to lose before you even voted. And that's what happened in 2016. The party decided in 2020 that this would have to change. Why? Well, the Sanders people were very vocal about it. There were many people in the public who were very vocal about it. That how could you have this process that's supposed to be open that has already been predetermined by the political party before the first election and the first vote is even cast? So what they did is they said that in 2020, any superdelegates they can only pledge their support after the last election is held or if you already know that the candidate has a majority of delegates. With 17 candidates, nobody's going to get a majority of delegates. So they're going to have to wait until the last election is held. In the case of our election season, we run all the way from February to June. February to June. So if no one gets a majority on the Democratic side, then uh, the superdelegates would have to withhold their vote. The Republicans don't do superdelegates. They're just straight out. Whoever wins, wins the delegates. Whoever wins the delegates, most delegates or a majority of delegates becomes the nominee. So this is a Democratic Party thing, not a Republican thing. Other odds and ends. We have a big day after we, uh, after we have the February 3rd caucus, and then we have a week later, the New Hampshire primary. You have something called Super Tuesday. Super Tuesday involves 16 states or jurisdictions. The reason why I say jurisdictions, American Samoa, and something called Democrats Abroad, where you are uh, getting support from people or the votes from people who are overseas uh, to vote. These states and jurisdictions will vote on March 3rd. About one-third of the population votes on that day. What about Illinois? In Illinois, we have the March 17th open primary. We also hold it on the same day as Arizona, Florida, and Ohio. But by that point, 29 states or territories or jurisdictions would have already voted. More than likely, by the time we get to Illinois, we'll probably know who the nominee is going to be. So all of these other states are going to decide who the nominee is going to be before Illinois. And when we say a third of the population votes on, on Super Tuesday, we're really looking at Texas and California, Colorado, Virginia, 
and North Carolina. That's pretty much Super Tuesday right there. Massachusetts as well. So when you think about the entire process, you say, well, why is Illinois so, so late in the game? I mean, it's, many of these states are late in the game. Well, the reason for that is that that's when the state decides that they want to have their primary. The states decide when they want to hold their primary, but the catch is this. They can never be, a they can never be ahead of Iowa, and they can't be ahead of New Hampshire. If they're ahead of Ohio, excuse me, Iowa or New Hampshire, they lose all of their credentials at the convention. And you might not say, well, you might say, well, that doesn't mean anything to you. But to a state party, they don't want to, like, be offensive to the national party. So Iowa and New Hampshire are always first and second. Where the other states fall, that's up for their states to decide. Everything belongs to the states. That's why I said it's not a national election. It's mostly a state-by-state-by-state -state -state election. Uh, some useful websites, and I can show you some of those right now. Uh, we have Dave Leap's Atlas of the United States Presidential Elections. Uh, it's a great website because it has every election result from 1789 to the present. If this doesn't come on right away, there we go. And you could also click on, it's running a little slow, but if you click on one of the headings at the top, such as election results. And you do it by primary. This was the primary and caucus vote in 2016 on the Democratic side. All of the red states are Hillary Clinton states, and all of the green states are Bernie Sanders states. The darker the red, the stronger the support for Hillary Clinton, the darker the green, uh, the stronger the support for Bernie Sanders. The interesting thing is this. If you highlight caucuses, Bernie Sanders won most of the caucus states, except for Iowa, but he came very close, and Nevada came very close. But all of the other green states are all caucus states. If you look at the primaries, uh, most of the states that were primaries were won by Hillary Clinton. So if there's a strength to anybody running for president in 2020, somebody like an Elizabeth Warren or a Poot, uh, Pete uh, Buttigieg or a Bernie Sanders might do well in caucuses, while other candidates like Joe Biden would probably do well in a primary election. But you can go from 1789 all the way to the present and see any of these elections. Uh, there's also politics1.com. I won't go through it all, but with politics1.com, it has every candidate running for office from every major race in the United States, from the state level all the way to president. Every candidate's website is up and running. And then something also called the Green Papers. The Green Papers deal with primaries and caucus dates and delegate information. You could even find out when Illinois uh, is having their primary and how they delegate or how they allocate all of their delegates in that state. One thing that I do want to show you is just to give you an example of how a caucus works. It is from the documentary. For some of my students have already seen this before. They're like, yeah, we've seen this before. But it is from a documentary entitled Caucus. 
which deals with the 2008 Republican nomination for president. It only focuses on Iowa. And there were many candidates who were running for president at that time for the nomination. Mitt Romney was one, Newt Gingrich was another, Rick Santorum was another, Michelle Bachman, a fourth one, and there were a few others. What I'm going to show you are two examples of how people campaign in Iowa. One is from Michelle Bachman, who was the darling of the Republican Party for a short time and didn't do very well in the caucus. And then there was Rick Santorum, who became the nominee. I shouldn't say the nominee. He did win the Iowa caucus that year. One second here. Well, if there was a volume switch, I would be able to show it to you. But there isn't one right now, so we'll just mute it like that. So trust me, it is a very good documentary. Uh, it shows you the ins and outs. It shows you how the candidates want to meet the public, but also how the public really wants to meet the candidates as well. Uh, that sums it all up for me. I thank you for coming out today. And if you have any questions, I'll be happy to answer anything in regards to what I discussed here or what you see with the uh, current uh, state of politics. I'll be happy to answer any questions you have. And like I said, thanks again. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. The superdelegates are strictly the Democratic Party. The superdelegates are decided by the Democratic Party leadership. And they choose people from, let's say, mayors, governors, congressmen to be those superdelegates. The people in office. Or even if they're high-ranking Democrats who are retired, let's say, like former Vice President Walter Mondale, he's a superdelegate. And he hasn't been in politics since 1984. And he would have in 2016, he would have voted for Hillary Clinton. Uh, for me personally, I don't agree with the process. It, it, if you're going to have a commission that says that the public is going to decide who the nominee will be, why is it up to the party to say, well, just to hedge our bets, we're going to make sure that you kind of have some participation, but not as much authority as you think you're going to have. That if you're going to have the public participate, let them participate. And then you work with that candidate whether you like them or not. So I'm, I, me personally, I'm against it. A candidate or a process? Well, some people would say what we should do is we should have a national primary that we should have all of these states voting on the same day. And I'm against that personally because if you had 50 states voting on the same day, you might have 50 different results. And then you have a convention where it's chaotic. I like this process from the perspective of if you have 20 candidates running for president, 
it winnows it down, it narrows down from like if you're not doing well in Iowa and you don't do well in New Hampshire, then you better get out. Well, I, I would agree with having a national holiday when we have a general election. I think that's a, I, I also remember times where uh, growing up where school was closed, but that was done at the local level or at the state level. That's up for a state to decide, and we don't have that. The other thing is, is that to give you some perspective of how dangerous the front-loading of primaries happens to be, Joe Biden has no money on hand. Very, I, when I say no, I meant like very little. If he loses Iowa and he loses New Hampshire, what that means is people will not contribute to his campaign. If he loses both states, he could probably drop out after New Hampshire. And he's supposedly the front-runner right now. So that is a possibility. By the time it gets to Illinois, like I said, you'll already know it's Trump versus person X. There won't be really much to choose from. At least I'm saying that now. Go ahead. It's a question of style. I think uh, Bernie really knows how to work the public, knows how to go up to people face to face. Uh, meet with others. Hillary Clinton was not her husband. Her husband was almost the same way. He would go up to you, shake hands, and make you feel like you were the only one in the room. Uh, the primary system allows, I should say, the primary system kind of like cuts people out of the process. If you're not registered to vote in a closed state, you can't show up and register. But if you're in a caucus system, you can show up and vote that day if you're not registered. So Bernie's getting a lot of those people who never participate. Hillary already had the status quo, those people who are already registered. I'm going to be there no matter what, and I'm going to vote that day. So that's why I think there was a bit of a difference between the two. I agree with that too. 
I, I, I see that point of view. I, I would always joke around that the Republican Party probably wished in 2016 that they had the same rules as the Democratic Party, where the superdelegates were going to decide who the nominee was going to be, because in that case, it probably would have been like John Kasich, or it would have been Marco Rubio, because superdelegates are tied to that party, and those two members, let's say, had been in the party since they were kids. So I, I could see the argument that the party should be involved, but once that candidate becomes the nominee, you know, I, if, if you look at it from the perspective of Trump being the nominee, the Republican Party had many ample opportunities to say, no, this is who our nominee is going to be, this is who you should support. And they kind of took a back seat thinking, well, there's no way people are going to nominate Donald Trump. And it didn't happen that way. And now he's part of that national brand. And I think it's going to have major effects on the Republican Party for maybe two presidential cycles. That means like eight more years. Where if you say you're a Republican, people will say, well, I remember that. That's, you're a party of Trump. Well, you know, a person might be like 15 years old today, and they don't know what you're talking about. But like that stigma goes along with you. Same thing on the Democratic side. The Democrats for a long time were considered to be like a liberal, out-of-touch political party, uh, stodgy. You know, uh, they only represented the elites from California and New York City. And uh, when Bill Clinton was elected, that... Democratic Party label changed. But the label of the Democratic Party was kind of like this out-of-touch party in the 1980s. wasn't until the 1990s where they, act, where they you know, got back on track. So when you fall behind, like you're saying, like when you fall behind as a political party, you really fall behind. You're kind of like out of the mainstream. You're in the minority for a long, long time. Any other questions? I know this topic is kind of rough at times because all we think of is that, hey, all we do is vote, and then that's the decision that's made, and we know what the start is, we know what the finish is, and, and there we go. But you realize there's a lot of inner workings and inner mechanisms that are taking place that make the electoral process in the United States quite complicated but also quite interesting to study. And I thank you. One oh, go ahead. Yeah. To go against Trump? Um, you got him. How much time do we have? <laughs> Honestly, I think for me, I would say the name's not even on the board. I would say it's either uh, Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar. I think they're the two who probably have the best chance. Who are I'd say would be most electable. The problem is, is that nobody, not many people see them as viable. So how do you get to the electable stage if nobody wants to even look at you? That's the problem. So we're already saying, like, look, I've, I have some bias myself. These are the only four I wrote down. It's not because I couldn't spell Buttigieg. It's because I put these four down. Okay. <laughs> I didn't want to take like 10 minutes trying to figure out how to spell it. But... You see, even I'm saying it from the perspective of these are the only four who the public would consider to be electable. But I don't necessarily think that they are the best candidates. I think there are other viable candidates out there who are electable. So I would say Buttigieg and, and Klobuchar are my two. But I have uh, a bad track record of picking winners, and so I just leave it at that. 
last person I could say that I, I really truly made a prediction that came true was that the Minnesota governor's race was won by Jesse Body Ventura, a former wrestler. But that's only because I was a wrestling fan and said, I'm going to try that one out. And he won. I was like, hey, I'm on a roll here. And I think I've lost like the last 50 or 60 elections. So uh, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> but those are my top two. Any other questions? Well, thanks for coming out. I really appreciate it. Thank you.